Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, the naked scientists get to the heart of heart disease. This show comes to you from the British Cardiovascular Society Conference in Manchester, where we've been busy scoping out the biggest breakthroughs in heart research, including how to prevent heart disease using everything from lycra to toothpaste. I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Cardiovascular disease, that's disease affecting the heart and blood vessels, accounts for a quarter of all deaths in the UK, and it's around the same in the US and Australia. In fact, it's the single biggest killer in the West. At this week's British Cardiovascular Society conference, which has been happening in Manchester, leading researchers from across the UK have been meeting to discuss how best to predict and prevent heart disease. The conference is supported by the British Heart Foundation, or BHF, which spends £100 million on heart research every year. Professor Peter Weisberg is the charity's medical director. We've done extraordinarily well as a a community for for heart disease over the last 50 years. So British Heart Foundation has been around just over 50 years, and in that time there's been a phenomenal drop in mortality from coronary disease in particular. So there's a huge success story there, but the problem is that we're left with a community that's ageing with a lot of chronic disability, a lot of heart failure, patients surviving heart attacks who would have died from them previously but now survive with damaged hearts. So we have a lot of problems that are accumulating in the elderly population that we've still got to deal with. And what is the BHF doing about that? So our priorities now are to try to improve prevention, diagnosis and treatment of heart disease, particularly from at a fundamental level. So most of our research money goes on basic scientific research to understand mechanisms, particularly at the moment, the mechanisms by which we might be able to regenerate the myocardium so we can repair damaged hearts. If that were to occur, then of course we could reverse the damage done by heart attacks and prevent the the epidemic from heart failure, which is accruing at the moment. If we can understand the fundamental biology of atherosclerosis properly, then we can prevent and treat it better. And likewise, if we understand the molecular mechanism, things like arrhythmias and congenital heart disease, there's a chance of putting those right. So we're very much focused on investment in the scientific basis of cardiovascular disease as a mechanism for finding ways of treating it. Peter Weisberg there. And before we crack on with some of the developments from the conference, what actually is the heart and how does it work? 
My name is uh, Dr Neil Campbell. I'm a consultant cardiologist, which is a heart specialist, and I work at Withenshaw Hospital, which is a large hospital in South Manchester. The heart sits slightly to the left of the middle of our chest, and it's a pump for moving blood around the body. The reason why we need to move blood around the body is to supply oxygen, sugars and nutrients to the rest of the organs in the body. How does this pump work? What's inside the heart that enables it to do that? The pump has got four chambers and the heart is made up of a muscle. Two chambers at the top of the heart are called the atria. The two chambers at the bottom of the heart are called the ventricle. And there are four valves inside the heart which enable blood to flow into the heart, be pumped out of the heart in the correct direction so that blood can go from the left side of the heart to the rest of the body and from the right side of the heart to the lungs where the blood can be oxygenated. Why do you need two halves to your heart, right side and the left side like that? So blood flows to the right side of the heart from the rest of the body. That blood has low levels of oxygen. That is then pumped to the lungs, where the lungs supply the blood with oxygen. Blood then flows to the left side of the heart, and then that blood which contains oxygen is then pumped back to the rest of the body, completing the circuit. So when I put my fingers on my wrist and I feel my pulse, what does that correspond to and what is the heart doing to produce that pulse so what you are feeling in your pulse is the blood flowing through your arteries and that is blood which is coming from your heart to your hand that heart rate is controlled from the top right hand chamber of the heart from an area of cells called the sinoatrial node And that is almost like a beacon or lighthouse which sends out repeated electrical signals. Those electrical signals are then transmitted from the top right chamber of the heart in a coordinated electrical system of motorways down to the bottom chambers of the heart to ensure that all of the chambers of the heart pump in a coordinated fashion. And when a cardiologist like you does an ECG on a patient, you are recording that electrical activity and that tells you how the heart's performing? That's correct. We're able to look at the ECG and we're able to work out exactly what is happening electrically in each chamber of the heart at any one time. And that enables us to make diagnoses about normal heart function, but also enables us to give us an idea of what happens electrically when the heart starts to have problems. Neil Campbell. ECG stands for electrocardiogram, and this is the heart trace corresponding to the electrical signals produced by the heart as it beats. To find out what it's like to undergo the procedure, I turned myself into a medical guinea pig. I'm James Rudd. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and we are in the ECG recording department, and we are going to record your ECG today. So if you'd like to follow me, we will head through into the examination room. This is Laura. She is a cardiac physiologist and she's going to be recording the ECG today for you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Chris. Uh, so what do you want me to do? Um, what I'll need you to do is remove the clothes from your top half so that I can get to your bare chest. OK, I'm down to my bare chest. OK, so if you could lie down so that your head's on the pillow and just make okay. yourself nice and comfortable there on the bed. I don't normally get to lie down at work <laughs> in the hospital. Are you comfortable enough? I'm very comfortable. Um, so I just need to shave your chest so that I can pop the stickers on. When you say stickers? Um, the electrodes for the ECG. 
Right, okay. I didn't realise I was going to get a shave when I yeah. came to work. Yep, so how have your chest there? <laughs> so, are you ready for this one? I, I think so. Just on the other side. There we go. So we're just taking off a little, little tiny bit right in the middle, basically between the breasts, isn't it? Yeah, just either side of your sternum there. Are you allergic to alcohol wipes or disinfectants? I'm not allergic to alcohol, I know that for a fact. <laughs> alcohol wipes, no fine. No bar here, unfortunately. So I'm just going to wipe the areas where I'm going to put the electrodes, just to make sure there's a good contact with your skin. So it might feel a bit cold now, OK? You're also cleaning up my ankles. Yes, so stickers go on your arms and legs, as well as on your chest. All right, so lots of stickers now. They look like they've got a sort of jelly on the back. They're, they're yes. sticky with the jelly. Yes, there is a bit of gel and that makes the contact with your skin to pick up the electrical activity. So there's one gone on my left arm at the top, yep. on my shoulder, one gone on my right side of my chest. Yep. That's two on the chest. Is there, is there a particular place you put them? Yes, each sticker has a specific position so that each ECG we do is exactly the same for every person. So I'm just going to get all the wires now. I'm going to place these on all of the stickers. They've got almost like little crocodile clips, like you'd connect up to a battery or something yeah. on, on the ends of the wires. They, and they're going on these, yeah, on these they tabs. they clip onto the stickers. They just clip onto the electrodes, OK? That's okay. it. So now I have wires everywhere. Yep, ten wires. <laughs> so now I need you to lie back into the bed and just relax as much as you can so that it makes a nice clear recording you done. Right, now it comes to the verdict. I'm going I'm to talk to the cardiologist and find out what it shows. So we've got your ECG in front of us now, Chris, and what we can see is a piece of graph paper with some black lines on. In essence, we've got a plot of voltage against time. So this is a snapshot of your heartbeat over about five seconds and as you may be aware the heart is a large muscle it's about the size of your fist and within the heart are specialist cells which are called pacemaker cells and these cells generate very small voltages which we can pick up on the surface of the skin using the ECG test. Okay can you then take me through James how what we're seeing on this piece of paper relates to what my heart is doing? So the very first part of the trace here, I'm just pointing to a, it looks like a humpback bridge. This is called the P wave. And this actually happens when the atria at the top of the heart are full of blood and begin to pump the blood into the ventricles. And the atria are the holding chambers, if you like, at the top of the heart. And they receive blood from the rest of the body and also from the lungs. The next thing we see is a very sharp up and then down stroke. And this is when the main pumping chambers of the heart, the ventricles start to contract. They expel the blood around the body and also they also push blood to the lungs as well. Finally, we have another humpback bridge. This is called the T wave of the ECG. And this is when the electrical activity of the heart is resetting itself back to normal and the ventricles and the atria are relaxed and getting themselves ready for the next heartbeat. How could a cardiologist like you then take that trace and see when a person has a problem? So there are several elements we can look at. We can look at the heart rate. We can look at whether the heartbeats are happening regularly or irregularly. And we can also look at the actual waves themselves. Sometimes they have unusual shapes, which we recognise as being a signal of an abnormality in the heart. 
If I had heart disease, say uh, a furred up coronary artery, not enough blood is getting to my heart, would you be able to tell that from an ECG? In most cases we can, yes, and it's always the first test that we do. As soon as you come into hospital, we would do an ECG, particularly if you had symptoms of heart problems like chest pain or palpitations. An ECG is a really quick, uh, inexpensive tool for uh, giving us a clue as to exactly what's going on with the heart. And I'm relieved that my ECG did in fact look all right. Thanks to James Rudd and also to Laura Hilmy from Adambrooks Hospital in Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. We've been at the British Cardiovascular Society Conference in Manchester, where the top minds in heart science have been meeting to discuss their latest breakthroughs. And we saw a whole host of different methods being used to find out what makes us tick. One such method we can use to investigate the heart and heart problems is by looking at how the heart forms in the first place. This is its embryological development. Birmingham University's Alice Roberts is a clinical anatomist and she's just written a book on the subject. Embryology is uh, largely just how a single cell, a single fertilised egg develops into a baby. So you, you look at how cells proliferate and there's this wonderful process of origami where new tissues form and they fold in on themselves and some of it's quite destructive as well so you get cell death occurring to separate the fingers for example or particularly relevant to the cardiovascular system you get rods of tissue forming and then cell death in the middle producing little tubes which will later be blood vessels so when you look at the development of the heart embryologically you see that it basically forms as a contractile vessel and that then it loops around and it has to undergo this process of septation so you get essentially little partitions appearing in the heart which set it up so that at the moment of birth it can suddenly go from supporting a single circulation to supporting a double circulation which you need if you're an air-breathing animal um, which you suddenly become when you're born Um, up until that point you haven't been using your lungs to to breathe air and instead you've been getting your oxygen from the placenta um, which enters the heart in a completely different way so so embryology helps us understand the function of the heart during the antenatal period so you know in that in that nine months that you're in your mother's womb but also actually has real relevance for understanding congenital heart defects as well because a lot of the the problems that we see um, in babies hearts are because of um, something going slightly wrong with what is actually a very complex process in the embryo. Alice Roberts and also studying how the heart develops is Sheffield University's Emily Noel. We're trying to understand how babies are born with with certain heart defects, so why they're born with holes in their heart, arteries that don't connect up properly, and we try and understand what genes make these processes happen normally and why they go wrong. How common are these abnormalities? So these abnormalities are the most common birth defect that there is, at least 1% of live births. Often these are sort of defects that need to be corrected immediately postpartum. And quite often, even if you have surgical correction of these defects, individuals can end up with lifelong complications as well. How are you trying to get to the bottom of why they happen? We use embryological models, things like mouse or things like zebrafish, to try and understand how your heart develops normally. So understanding how an organ develops normally is very important for being able to understand then what goes wrong. So we try and identify which genes are important for normal development and then we can systematically try and understand why these genes are important. It is complicated, but can you explain for the likes of me, how does a heart develop and when? 
The heart develops very early during embryonic development. So in humans, your heart will have developed already by around four or five weeks after uh, fertilization. And the heart usually starts off as a very simple tube. And this tube then undergoes quite a complex folding event, which is very important for making sure that your chambers line up properly or your veins and arteries form properly. Um, and it's this sort of process of folding that we're very interested in. And when if, if this process goes wrong, why you end up with defects. So one tube bends itself into a series of wiggles I suppose and that gives you the sequence of chambers that the adult heart has. Yep that's correct so one tube forms initially and and this tube is already sort of roughly divided into what will become an atrium and what will become a ventricle those are the different chambers of the heart and then this tube will then undergo um, sort of two bending events which mean that your um, atrium and your ventricle are going to be in the proper place in the adult heart um, and that the scepter between them can form properly. Those are the walls? Yep, those are the walls of the heart which will separate your atrium and your ventricles. And you're asking, well that must be obeying genetic instructions to form so which genes are controlling it and therefore if it goes wrong which genes must be going wrong? Absolutely. So we look at all of these different aspects and say, okay, what are the genes that are required for each of these processes? And if we don't have these genes, why doesn't the heart develop normally? You make it sound very simple. I'm sure it's not or you wouldn't be doing the research you're doing. How do you do that? In my lab, we use zebrafish embryos. We can either specifically knock down genes that we know are important in people and say, okay, if we lose this gene in a zebrafish embryo, does its heart not loop properly and if its heart doesn't loop properly why doesn't it loop properly and the other approach that we can take is just to look at in general at zebrafish that we know have heart defects and say okay which genes have caused these defects you talk about fish though how relevant is a fish to me as a human i'm not a fish obviously no of course despite appearances (laughs) may be deceptive absolutely the zebrafish heart when it begins to form is very similar to the human heart so it starts off as a tube and it undergoes looping events that are important for making sure that the chambers align properly the zebrafish heart actually only has two chambers compared to the human heart which obviously has four but certainly these early processes of heart development are very similar and we know that a lot of the genes that govern this process are also very similar Once someone has been born with one of these problems, why is it helpful you saying, well, we know which gene it was that caused that? So there are a number of reasons why... um we try and understand genetically what causes congenital heart disease. So one of those reasons is something as simple as genetic counselling. People who have these problems, they want to know why they have congenital heart diseases. Information is very powerful. And also it's very important that we can provide good advice to these people if they want to go on and have families on their own. So whether they're likely to pass these malformations on to their children too. The second thing is if we know that there's going to be a familial sort of genetic component to their heart disease, that we can keep an eye on pregnancies as they progress um, and make sure that if there is going to be a need for surgical intervention, that that can happen as soon as it's pertinent to do so. Some people also say if we understand how the heart develops, we might be in a position to kickstart it into regrowing itself when it goes wrong and forming healthy tissue again in the context of disease. Yeah, and I think that's a particularly pertinent point when it comes to things like heart regeneration. So the zebrafish is capable of regenerating its heart after it's had damage done to it. Um, There is increasing evidence which suggests that actually embryonic genetic programs are reinitiated in our heart as it undergoes regeneration in the zebrafish. So being able to understand why these pathways are driving heart development um, may actually help us understand how we can activate regeneration in adults who have undergone things like heart attack. Emily Noel. 
And not only embryonic animals, but fully grown ones form a key part of the work investigating heart function. Holly Shields is based at Manchester University, where she studies fish. Now, fish are useful to study because some species can survive in both hot and cold water, or even at low oxygen levels, without their hearts giving up. If we can understand how, it will help doctors to develop better therapies for humans living with heart disease. I nipped away from the conference to visit Holly's lab to find out how. We work at a number of levels. We work with whole animals. We have a swim tunnel, which is a uh, treadmill for fish. We can put the fish <laughs> in the tunnel and make them exercise, changing the uh, flow of the water that the fish must swim against, changing the temperature, the oxygen concentration, to try and uh, mimic the conditions in the environment and see how that affects the ability to swim. Is that here, by the way? Could we take a look at that? It is like a, a bathtub with a sort of tunnel that I guess you can you can look at the fish really easily when it's swimming along there and it's not full of water at the moment but when it is you can just pump it through as fast as you want and I guess really put the fish through their faces. But the funny thing is fish love to swim so they you put them in the tunnel and they just they swim we don't make them go too fast and we don't make it too too we don't make the conditions too difficult for them just things they would experience in the wild. And what can this tell you? Well the first thing we can do is to look at how they swim. The link between that and the cardiovascular system is that the heart really underlies all performance aspects of the fish. And so we can ask it to swim under different conditions. We can also put um, probes on the fish to be able to measure heart function while it's swimming. The simplest is is measuring ECGs or electrocardiograms. Those are fairly non-invasive, just on the center of the surface of the fish. And we can measure ECGs or heart rates during exercise. But we can also do more invasive things, putting flow probes on, measuring pressure, measuring blood flow. What are you hoping this will tell us when you get all these readings? Well, it'll hopefully tell us whether or not the cardiovascular system is responsible for its ability to swim and what aspect is it. Is it the pumping ability? Is it pressure development? Is it the electrical ability? That kind of leads me on to some interesting work we were doing up in the Arctic last summer. And we were looking at a fish called the Arctic sculpin. We know that there's two populations of Arctic sculpin. The one that was in this, this polar area seems to be progressively outcompeted by its more temperate cousin, the uh, short-term sculpin. So we were looking at the sensitivity of both of their hearts to increases in temperature. We were using ECGs to look at the stability of the electrical activity of the heart as temperatures increase. And so that can tell us whether or not one species has a more electrically stable heart than the other species. And if it does, that might affect its ability to migrate into different temperature zones. Before I ask you what you found out, I've just got to ask, applying an ECG onto a fish in the Arctic. This sounds like a story. That was exceptionally interesting. We were working at a research station in the Arctic, so we did have a lab and we did have um, the ability to to try and do this. This wasn't out on a ship in the middle of the ocean. Our biggest problem was that our sculpins started eating each other in the tanks, (laughs) and so we we ended up having less species by the time we we got to finishing all the experiments. But it was certainly an adventure, and I I don't think we're at the answer, but... There's, at this point, indications that the one with more thermal tolerance, wider thermal tolerance, its heart was able to withstand higher temperatures better. Do we know why its heart is able to better tolerate these changes in temperature? Well, that kind of comes to another way that we do our work. So we can look at the whole heart function, but we also work on the level of the single myocyte a lot of the time. Myocytes are the individual muscle cells that make up the working portion of the heart. So they're the parts that contract with each heartbeat and relax to allow the heart to fill. And so what we can do is take a heart and digest it using enzymes into these individual cells. And then we can use a technique called voltage clamp, 
or using ion imaging to look at ion flow across the cell membranes. That can tell us which of the different components that allow the heart to function are affected by the environment. What has this told you about what makes a heart adaptable and what doesn't? Well, I think that we've certainly... This is my work. This is the work of one of my colleagues in in Finland, Matti Vornanen. He's been able to show that the sodium channel is fairly temperature-sensitive and might set the ability for the heart to work um, at high temperatures. And what are these sodium channels for? These are the channels that open in the cell that initiate muscle contraction. I see. So the thing that helps the heart to ba-boom, ba-boom at the cell level might be what is key to different species being able to do well in certain conditions. Yes, exactly. Um, but what's also interesting is it's the same ion channels that control the um, ba-boom, ba-boom from across all species. So whether or not we're looking at a fish, we're looking at a reptile, or we're looking at mammals and humans, we still have a similar components of ion channels. And so we can use fish or reptiles really to get deeper understanding about um, how the heart works as a whole and hopefully be able to use the information there to probe or to ask questions that are relevant at the level of humans as well. Okay, so what kind of things that might be might be relevant to humans have you come across so far? Because I, I know I was wondering, like, how similar to a human's heart is a fish heart. So what, what kind of things have you found? Well, certainly they're different at the whole heart level. But at the ion channel level, there's some similarities. And in a sense, that's been quite instructive for some recent work we've been doing looking at uh, the effects of pollutants on the cardiovascular system. So we came into this work a few years ago when we were asked to help understand the implications of the Gulf oil spill on the pelagic fish, the tuna, the mackerel, and we looked at the effects of different components of the oil. And what did you find? Well, we found that oil is not good for heart cells. <laughs> um, uh, it, it causes the cells to lose their electrical stability. I imagine if the cells lose the ability to contract and relax at the regular intervals that they need to do, that could lead to the heart not beating the way it's supposed to. Exactly. And we also found it also affected the calcium channels. And these calcium is the ion that actually is responsible for the heart contracting and for the heart relaxing. So it was affecting both the contractility and the electrical activity. Holly Shields. But it's not just fish that are exposed to oil-based pollution. Bad air quality is now considered to be one of the leading causes of heart attacks and strokes worldwide. Dave Newby at the University of Edinburgh has been investigating how. People have observed for quite a while that high air pollution has bad health effects and uh, uh, that's been known since the mid-1900s. What people have appreciated more recently is that beyond the obvious that air pollution can make your breathing bad, it actually increases the risk of heart attacks and strokes. And so that's where I start to become interested because there's this association of air pollution and you having heart attacks and heart disease. Not only getting it over time, but also uh, there's evidence that it actually triggers a heart attack. This isn't just because people who are struggling to breathe, that's just a stressful situation, and that makes them have a heart attack. There's something more going on. That's right, yes, more than, it's more than that, because actually the pollution that's in the air, actually is, sometimes it's imperceptible. The particles that are in the air are so small you can hardly see them. So it's not that. People keep asking, well, what's the mechanism of that? You know, OK, you see this association, but it doesn't make sense to me. So what we did, we set off on a programme of work to look at the mechanisms of how air pollution could do this, and it was in many ways quite intriguing. So what we did was we worked with some investigators in Sweden. We went there because they have a unique exposure chamber, 
and they have of course a Volvo engine so what we did was we had this uh, diesel Volvo engine and we diluted down the exhaust and then fed it into this chamber which of course did raise some eyebrows I have to say Hang on a minute, you put people in the chamber and you blow in car exhaust for them to breathe Absolutely So, (laughs) How did you get that through an ethics committee? Yeah, that's exactly what the British Heart Foundation (laughs) said to me and uh, what was quite interesting is when I pointed out to them the levels that were inside this chamber were lower than the levels outside their front door and um, because at that time they were in a very very polluted area of london which was actually the highest levels in london were recorded just around the corner from them so i said to them if it's ethical for them to invite me down from edinburgh to london to their polluted city and go on their committee then it's ethical for me to do that uh, and it was diluted of course so uh, the levels that we have are w- w- the levels you'd expect at the roadside of a busy road uh, and so this was relevant to what we see in the cities and we got people to exercise gently in the, those chambers to breathe in this and then we looked at how their blood vessels responded and what we found was that the blood vessels were more tight and more constricted they didn't relax as much and the blood that flowed through it was much more sticky and much more likely to cause blood clots and those two things together blood vessels that aren't relaxing that are tight and have blood clots are just the recipe for heart attacks and strokes do you know what component it was in the smoke that was doing that Yes. So in in the exhaust, there are various different things. There are gases, um, but there are also these particles. They're really tiny particles, though. They're so small you cannot see them by the naked eye. They're what we call nanoparticles, really tiny. Uh, and it seemed to be those particles, and they're covered in bits of metal, bits of unburnt fuel, organic components, metals. And these things can react quite nastily to biological tissues. And what we were able to show is that it seems to be these tiny microscopic particles that seem to be causing the problem. Just because you breathe them in, or do they go further afield in your body once, once you breathe in? Yeah, that's a very important question. And actually, if I'm truly honest, we don't really know for certain, but there are three potential mechanisms. One, it goes into the lung. The lung doesn't like it and sends out um, messages to the rest of the body. Another mechanism is that they go into the lung, deep into the lung. Uh, They get gobbled up by the cells of the body, the immune cells, and then they go into the bloodstream, and there they might harm the blood vessels. Or they could even go straight into the bloodstream. We have some preliminary data that these parts are so tiny so small that they can cross cell membranes and and get into the bloodstream. There they might actually cause the furring up of of blood vessels that cause heart attacks and strokes. What about actually monitoring the the real-life experience of people in a real-life situation to see what their exposure is? Can, Can we do that? Do we have that sort of data? We do. Um, So we can use personal monitoring. So you wear this lovely backpack, uh, which monitors the quality of the air, measures the particles, the mass, the number of particles, the gases in the air. And so you've got sort of like a portable laboratory on your back. And uh, uh, we walked around Beijing just before the Olympic Games, and we were able to see the quite dramatic levels of air pollution there. We actually then went on to do a study where we got patients to wear a face mask. It's an industrial mask, so this is not the simple cloths that you see people put in front of their faces. But this is a mask that's very efficient, takes out a lot of these particles. And when we got people to walk around just for one day with these masks on, their blood pressure was lower, their breathing was easier, and some of the measures that we did of how much heart stress they were under were much lower. So actually stopping breathing in some of these particles in the air around you does seem to have benefits for the body. Dave Newby from Edinburgh University here on The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. And still to come, we'll be finding out other ways that your environment can harm your heart and what scientists and you at home can do about it. And just a warning, it involves lycra. 
But first, another factor which we know can harm your heart is being overweight. It makes you much more likely to have high blood pressure and therefore heart attacks. But if you're pregnant, it can also increase the blood pressure of your baby. And in a world where around two thirds of adults are overweight, this might be casting a dangerous shadow over future generations. I caught up with two researchers at the conference who are looking into why this is happening. Up first, Susan Ozan from the University of Cambridge. From human studies, actually, some of the strongest evidence is when we look at children currently living in the same household, born to the same parents, but from pregnancies that occurred either before or after the mother had bariatric surgery, so therefore from pregnancies where she was either lean or obese. So bariatric surgery, are these sort of gastric banding surgeries that help people to shed weight? Exactly. And you're, you're effectively saying, look, we've got the same parents, the same environment, so the genes are pretty similar, the environment's the same, but the only thing that's different is the weight, so you can compare the two. And so if you look at those children who were born from pregnancies where the, after the mother had lost weight and she was lean, they're slimmer, they have lower blood pressure, and they're more insulin sensitive, so they're less likely to get diabetes. Insulin being this hormone that controls sugar. Yeah, so insulin is the major hormone in our blood, which when we eat a meal, makes sure that the blood glucose levels don't stay high. It makes the glucose go into muscle where we store it and also into fat tissue. And when you say children, are we talking throughout childhood and into adulthood or are you saying just when they're born? When does this effect manifest? So you can see evidence for it very early on, but for the studies they've looked at actually people right up into their 20s and shown effects right from two years old right up until they're in their 20s. Striking that something that should be happening when that baby is just in utero for just 40 weeks should have 40 years of legacy or more. Or more, because as I mentioned, it can also potentially impact on the next generation as well. How? So we think what obesity during pregnancy is doing is impacting on how our DNA is used. So it's not changing the DNA sequence, but the genes that we're using within our genome and how much we're using them differs because of a response to the environment. So it's almost like you're in a library, you've got a whole load of books, but it doesn't mean to say you're going to read all the books. It's the ones that you pick off the shelf, which are going to determine which ones you read. So we have a baby, it's growing in its mother. The mother is determining the environment the baby grows up in. If the mother is obese, there will be some kind of change to the chemical environment that the developing infant is experiencing, this has an effect of chemically changing the DNA and that affects what genes are turned on or off or how much. Exactly. So that affects the baby that is developing there and then, but how does that influence the next generation? So that will determine how likely that baby is to develop diabetes, for example, how likely that baby is to have high blood pressure, how likely that baby is to have a heart attack. Now, obviously, that baby themselves, when they become pregnant... If she's more likely to get diabetes, for example, during pregnancy, then you will again have an impact on the next generation, even if her diet has been totally normal. I thought you might be going down the route of, well, if you're having a daughter, when that baby is developing, then inside her is her future ovary with all of her future eggs and therefore half of the genetic information of her children, your grandchildren in there. Yep, and that will also contribute it as well. And actually the same is happening from sperm as well. So there's more and more evidence to show that dad's diet 
also impacts on the sperm and how that will then impact on the next generation. As well as these so-called epigenetic changes, there are clues from animal studies that there may be changes going on in the developing brain too. Lucilla Poston from King's College London. So what we've done is we've, we've made mice and rats fat. We give them delicious things to eat, so they're very happy to do that. And they get fat uh, when they're pregnant, and we've looked at the offspring as they're growing up. And we have found, just as has been suggested by the human studies, that the offspring do get fatter, and they also have high blood pressure. And the focus in terms of mechanism is pointing towards an area of the brain which is called the hypothalamus. And that area, in terms of development in in the womb, is very susceptible to nutritional influence. Uh, So in the later stages of pregnancy, when this area of the brain is developing, we know that nutrient hormones can actually change the way it develops. So you can imagine that if you hardwire the networks of, of, of the brain's neurons, you might actually change the, either the blood pressure or the, or the fatness of the child because that area of the brain is very responsible for controlling both of those outcomes, both in terms of, of the hunger, the satiety of the child and the blood pressure of the child. So there is a physical change in the connectivity of the yeah. bits of the brain that determine blood pressure, how your heart works and also your future appetite yeah. if you are exposed yeah. to, during development, a sort of an obese environment. You can change the development of the hypothalamus by the nutrient hormones which surround it during development. That's been shown experimentally. There seems to be no question about that. We can't look at that in people, so we can't categorically say this is happening in mums and their babies, but but the evidence from, from animal studies is certainly very positive that that could be one of the mechanistic pathways. Lucilla Poston, and before her, Susan Ozan. Quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Mm, And dangerous factors like obesity or high blood pressure lead towards one of the highest causes of death in the West, heart attacks. Indeed, heart attacks are very common, but thankfully many more people are surviving them these days. The downside, though, is that victims often suffer health effects afterwards, like chronic heart failure, and that's despite getting to hospital quickly and undergoing emergency treatment. It turns out that opening up blocked arteries that cause heart attacks tackles only half the problem. To explain why, and first up, what happens when a person suffers a heart attack, here's Colin Berry, Professor of Cardiology at the University of Glasgow. Classically, it's the sudden blockage of one of the main arteries in the heart. And that is typically caused by the breakdown of the wall of the heart artery because it's diseased. Fatty plaque has accumulated at one or more places. The plaque ruptures, that exposes the constituents of the wall of the artery to the blood. Normally, they don't meet, but when they do, they're not a great mix, and a blood clot forms, and that blood clot leads to loss of flow in the heart artery that is experienced by the patient as chest pain. Does that mean that the heart downstream of that blockage, that part of the heart, is destined to die unless someone like you comes along? Yes. Bluntly, that is the case. And within 60 minutes, most certainly some of those heart muscle cells will have started to die off and within two hours will be threatened and beginning to to die off almost irrecoverably. What's the current gold standard treatment? What's the best way, do we think at the moment, of managing a person in that situation? 
the whole team is working in an emergency care circumstance to achieve restored flow in the heart artery as quickly as possible. We put a plastic tube in the wrist, we put a long catheter to the heart arteries, we inject dye using uh, camera imaging, and we identify the blocked artery, and as quickly as possible we pass a wire through that blockage, open the blockage by placing either a balloon or indeed sucking out the clot, Whilst the situation looks so much better with flow restored in the heart artery, I know from our research that there is a different story that is operative at the level of the heart muscle. Go on. All the small vessels in up to half of patients are all blocked. What do you mean? So the treatment pathway focuses on the main artery, which is large, But that artery has myriads of small vessels. Imagine the arborization from a tree. These small vessels and all their little leaves are all blocked with micro-clots. Is that something that happened at the time that the patient had the initial event? Or are you saying that in going in and focusing on getting that clot out and opening up the artery, all we've done is to export the problem downstream. We've broken bits of it up and and they've floated off down the artery and lodged, making more blockages downstream. Yes, that is a very likely scenario. So what you're saying is you, you have taken patients in which this intervention has been carried out and you can see evidence that these vessels are blocked after what we currently regard as the gold standard treatment of unclogging arteries. It represents a limitation of medical practice. We have focused on the the main life-threatening problem and successfully uh, treated the patient in that regard, but it has left a legacy of problems within the small vessels of the heart that can lead to heart failure in the longer term. What are you proposing to try and do about this? Historically, heart attack was treated with a clot-breaking drug. What we propose to do here is to give a small dose, a fraction of the dose, directly into the heart artery to break down all those microclots. That is the focus of this new trial called Tea Time. The idea being then that, so you go in, do what you've just described, you still open up the artery, but anticipating that you will dislodge stuff that's going to go downstream and block those vessels, anticipating that's going to happen at the same time you're going to put in some clot-blasting chemicals which will hopefully prevent those other small blood vessels getting blocked or unblock them if they are blocked already and that should reduce the risk of onward complications. And we have to wait for a couple of years to know the answer to that question. Colin Berry and fingers crossed his trial proved successful. Now, better than trying to rescue a heart damaged by a heart attack is to try to prevent one happening in the first place. And Edinburgh cardiologist Mark Dweck has a new method for spotting heart attacks waiting to happen. Yeah, so at the moment when we assess these coronary arteries, the easiest thing to look at is, are there any narrowings there? But what we've learned is that actually the majority of heart attacks appear to occur at sites where there isn't really a narrowing at all. And so we need new techniques that go beyond just looking for narrowings, looking at the components of that plaque, looking at the activity of those plaques, to really get a better sense of which are the plaques that are causing a problem and, you know, who are the patients that are more at risk of having a heart attack. What are you doing to then get a clearer picture of what's going on in the risky bits of the arteries? How are you trying to spot them? So we have a new imaging technique called PET imaging. 
essentially this is uh, where we inject traces in the body that tell us the activity of disease processes as it's occurring in the body. So we can start to look at the coronary arteries, to look at plaques, and say, right, this plaque is active. It is doing something at the moment. This is not um, a patient who has stable coronary artery disease. This is someone whose disease process is active. And our hypothesis is that if you identify the active people, you're going to identify people that are at higher risk. What do you inject people with? It's radioactive fluoride, I guess radioactive toothpaste, effectively. This has actually been used for many years to look at bone. We're now using it to image calcification activity in the coronary arteries. So does calcium go along with dodgy bits of artery that might have a heart attack risk then? Actually, we think that the calcification process is a healing process. So you have lots of inflammation in the, in the artery, and then the body tries to heal it up by calcifying it. If we see the early stages of that calcium, then we know that there's a nasty plaque there that the body is trying to heal, but it hasn't healed it up yet. And this injection of radioactive toothpaste, the, the radioactive fluoride, that can highlight those early stage lesions, can it? Yes, yeah, so we have looked at this in great detail over the last couple of years with Cambridge University as well as in Edinburgh, and it looks like this fluoride is binding to the very early stages of the calcium. So we're very excited about it. So if you did this test on somebody and you saw a patch of artery that flashed up very hot on your PET scan with your radioactive fluoride marker, suggesting to you this is a, a plaque which is very rapidly evolving, it might be a heart attack risk, what are you going to do for that patient then? How would you manage them? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I think there's two kind of schools of thought on this. One is that, right, if you see an active plaque, a nasty plaque, then maybe you can try and stabilise that particular plaque. How? What do you mean by stabilise? So people have th thought about maybe trying to put a stent into that plaque to um, stop it from rupturing, to strengthen the wall of it, I guess. Um, personally, I, I don't believe that's the right approach because what often happens is you see one active plaque at a moment in time. But this is a dynamic process. That plaque may heal up okay, but another plaque may develop in another area. And so actually I think the best chance of us preventing events is to use drugs, things like statins, things like aspirin, that kind of treat all the plaques at the same time. And in particular, we are developing very powerful drugs that really lower cholesterol levels a lot, but they're very expensive. And so we need to be able to target those patients, to uh, those drugs, to the patients that are at the highest risk. And so th I think that's the space where this kind of imaging technique may have a role, where you're really trying to identify those at the very highest risk they're going to benefit from the most aggressive, expensive treatments. That was Mark Dweck, and you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Georgia Mills. And this week we're dissecting some of the top heart science that we spotted at the British Cardiovascular Society conference this week in Manchester. Now, I found out about one way to keep your heart thumping happily, and that's by becoming a mammal. That's middle-aged man in lycra. This is a phenomenon that has those of us who thought we were past it getting out there and getting healthy. But there's also a worry that overexerting is actually what causes some mammals to have heart attacks in the first place. I caught up with Sanjay Swarmer from St George's University of London and asked him the killer question, to run or not to run? We all know that exercise is good for you. People who exercise regularly 
have a favourable lipid and blood pressure profile, they're less likely to be overweight and diabetic. And by controlling all of these risk factors for atherosclerosis, which is what causes heart attacks, they reduce their risk of dying from a heart attack by 50% when they reach their 50th or 60th birthday. So everybody knows that exercise is very good for you and everybody should be doing it to gain an additional three to seven years of life. But what the mammal's all about is a 40 to 60-year-old man gets to middle age and sees the middle age spread around the abdomen and decides, I need to do something about this because I've heard that people who don't may die from a heart attack. They often join the gym or a running club and soon realise that they are as good as people who are younger than them. And that the good news for everybody is that as one ages, of course, the facial, facial expression changes, the hair changes, but what doesn't change very much is your skeletal muscle and your ability to engage in endurance events. To give you some idea, if you look at the average times of marathon finishers aged between 20 and 49, there's not much difference. Wow, is this true of men and women? This is true of men and women. So, of course, men realise at the age of 40 or 50 that they can actually beat people who are younger than them and being ultra competitive this drives them on and that is usually what gives birth to the middle-aged man in lycra who spends most weekends competing and exercising which is and this is very very good for you the one thing that everyone worries about a little bit of course is this paradox that although exercise protects from heart diseases it can in some people precipitate or trigger a sudden death usually in someone who's got a silent cardiovascular abnormality we actually look at the demographics of people that die they are usually middle-aged aged between 43 and 55 they're almost always men so would you say there are clues then at who might be more at risk around 55 percent of people who die have already got established risk factors for coronary artery disease. So it's, that's one thing to look for and to try and rectify. One can rectify someone's cholesterol or blood pressure or even, or even sugar control. The second thing is that about 15% have a previous cardiac history. And what's worrying is that about 30% of people have reported symptoms suggestive of cardiac disease, such as chest tightness that's brought on by jogging, or breathlessness that's disproportionate to the amount of exercise being performed, palpitation, or a feeling of dizziness during exercise. These are all ominous symptoms. So the things to look out for are... Am I overweight? Have I got a high cholesterol? Have I got high blood pressure? Am I diabetic? Has someone in my family died below the age of 50? These are all warning symptoms. And if you've got those, you do need to be assessed in a professional physician setting. Every now and then on the marathon, you do see someone who's died unexpectedly during it. And it, maybe it doesn't happen that much, but it does stick with you. And I guess it, it's worrying. You think, should I exercise? Are the benefits worth it? What would you say to that? I think everybody in this country, in fact, everyone on the universe must exercise. There is no medication invented yet that has the benefits of exercise, i.e. anti-aging, preventing cardiac diseases, preventing depression, preventing dementia, preventing osteoporosis. If we packaged up exercise into a pill, it would be known as the miracle pill. And unlike medications, exercise is free. It can be performed at any time, and it's usually devoid of some of these side effects that you get of medications. So everyone should be exercising. The amount of exercise that you need to do is about 30 minutes of moderate exercise five times a week. By that I mean a jog at a 15-minute 
mile pace, so four miles an hour. That's what you need to do to achieve these benefits. That's not to say that you have to do that. You can do less and still achieve benefits compared to people who don't do anything. Now, in, in terms of marathon running, I want to allay your anxieties. The death rate in marathons is about 1 in 50,000. The reason why it appears more is because many marathons, such as the London Marathon, are under the radar of the media and are televised. So when something does happen to someone who's actually trying to raise money for charity or doing something that's good for them, it does really, really captivate the audience and captures the heart of the nations. But these deaths are rare. They're usually due to people who already have predisposing factors to cardiac disease. So I would say that if you've got any of the risk factors I talked about, then you should be tested out before you embark on something like marathon running. Now, as well as running to keep your own heart fit, there's something amazing that you can do for other people, and that's to sign up as an organ donor. Until we've solved the gold standard of repairing failed and broken hearts, which research at the conference is moving us towards, the last chance for some people living with heart failure is to have a replacement put in. Now, heart failure is when the heart simply can't pump enough blood around the body. And it's so prevalent it costs 2% of our GDP. Transplants come from people who are brain dead and, with permission from the families, are taken off life support. Stephen Large, a surgeon from the world-leading transplant centre, Papworth Hospital in Cambridgeshire, was telling the conference about something which might improve people's chance of getting thrown this lifeline in the first place. Um, we, we look at, um, at heart failure in sort of stages, if you will. And we're looking at patients for heart transplantation who are stuck in these in the severe category of heart failure. So they're breathless at rest or they're persistently tired. Their exercisability is very, very limited. Their lives are so contained, dreadfully contained, by the restrictions of their heart failure, their pump failure, despite best medical medical therapy and those are candidates for transplantation and of course we find that the younger people tend to do better with transplantation than older folk which is a little ironic because heart failure is an age-related issue Um, we heard today in this conference 20 percent risk of heart failure developing in those over the age of 65 and that's a daunting prospect as you approach 65 not great (laughs) in terms of actually taking the heart out of someone who no longer needs it, I suppose, and putting it into someone who does. This sounds incredibly difficult. How long have we been able to do this and what are the success rates? Well, I was uh, a secondary school student when this whole area exploded. And, uh, of course, Christian Barnard hit the press in 67 with his transplantation of um, Wachensky. There was a big flurry of transplantation after that, and folk didn't understand really the the ups and downs of uh, immune suppression because, of course, you have to damp down their, the, the recipient of the heart's immune system. Otherwise, they'll reject it, like any foreign protein. So we have to get the patients to have re- uh, immune suppression so they tolerate the new heart, and uh, it, it, it keeps them going, and very effectively so too, as we saw again from statistics today. Survival moving from a 50-50 chance of those with severe heart failure of one year to a 50-50 survival after heart transplantation of 13 years, which is amazing, absolutely incredible therapy. And not just survival, but of course, a quality of life benefit. Hugely impressive. So how does one of these transplants work? 
Well, last year, BBC Radio 5 Live made history and did a live recording from one of these operations. And we've got a clip here which gives you a small idea of just how incredible these procedures are. So this is my first look proper into the operating theatre and you can see Steve's head right in front of me just coming out of the top of the bed, various tubes connected to the top of his head and coming out of his mouth as well. And if I just come over to my right as well, pretty much the most important machine in here, which is effectively doing the job of Steve's heart, working out the circulation of Steve's blood around his body whilst his heart can no longer do so. One, two, three surgeons right next to Steve and doing all of the main work. And then we have the um, perfusionist here who's operating that machine I was talking about that's doing the work of Steve's heart. And then the anaesthetist just to the left as well. And they know that they've got a long road ahead. Let's have a quick word with Laura, who's the transplant coordinator. So just tell us where we are at the moment, because they've been working for some time already. What stage are we at here? Uh, we're at a stage where we're preparing to explant the heart here from Steve. So he's on the bypass machine now. So Mr Howell is just uh, loosening the heart and preparing to take it out properly. And in the background of that, we are waiting for his new heart to be delivered to us. So we've got the, the timings quite strict. We're hoping that will happen within the next um, half an hour. When you say the timing's quite strict, I mean, it's, it's actually incredibly tight, isn't it? It's, it's effectively in a race against time. Yeah, it's a four-hour window that we have when we stop the circulation and the, the blood supply of the old heart and transport it on ice to it to be, need to be refused in Stephen's body. So um, it's crucial. And obviously you've got a transportation time to factor into that as well. Just as a reminder, at this moment in time, we're heading to a critical stage here, aren't we, now? Yeah, it's, it's crucial now because we're getting anxious that the heart will be on its way to us and we need to make sure that we're ready because we just want to cut down the amount of time that the heart is on ice as much mm. as possible. Well, the heart has just been taken out. If I can... I'm going to come round this way because the heart has literally just been taken out. You might have heard the surgeon, Neil Howe, just say the heart is out so that everybody in the room knows. And here it is on a table in a plastic bowl. It's quite a sight. It's quite a size. It's bigger than I would have thought. And it just made a movement there completely independently from Steve's body as well. Now, what they will be doing at the moment is preparing Steve's body for when the new heart arrives. And in front of me, effectively, uh, is a man who does not at this moment in time have a heart in him, which is quite a thing to consider. And also to look at what is now going to be his old heart in front of me. And again, as I looked at it there, the heart's still moving, uh, even though it's no longer in Steve's body, which is quite a thing to see. And I've seen that happen about six or seven times now. That will now go for various tests. And now we await the arrival of the new healthy heart Neil Howe how are things going here? Well, they're going pretty straightforward really so uh, you can just see in here at the moment uh, when we look in this is the cavity that's left by the heart being removed and you see what a huge space there is there mm. and you can see down here we've got the what we call the cuffs so this is the residual heart tissue and the residual blood vessels that we're going to sew the new heart into we've got absolutely everything prepared uh, we're all ready. I've got my first suture already placed at the top of the left atrium. So as the second the heart comes in, I can take it out, inspect it, uh, and start implanting it. 
So the box has been opened, there's some paperwork and such like in the top, and then it's full of ice, the ice being scraped back. Ice as you would picture it in a cool box. This is... And one of the team here rooting through that ice... What, what, what's happening there? What's it protected by? Okay, so so this is this is the standard way of protecting the hard when it's it's getting transplantation. So it's it's triple bagged and and literally just packed in ice. So so this is when the coordinators sort of get a little bit stressed and they don't like it. What they're doing is they're cutting through the first bag without trying to cut through the second or the third bag. And what they're going to do is they're going to open this up, and then I'm going to reach my hands in into the sterile interior of this, and I'm just going to lift the heart out. And then I'm going to move it to this bowl over here. So as soon as I see what I want to see, which is that bit there. And this goes into an empty bowl at this stage, just because there's a lot of... What's the heart floating in there? Uh, It's just just some saline, so salt water. Right, Okay. Picking the heart out there, orientating it around. Yeah, Okay. I mean, this is absolutely amazing stuff to see, uh, the work they're doing here, which they're just treating this heart with great care, but at the same time preparing it in order to uh, put it in. So here we go then. So first stitch goes in. So just to tell our listeners now, uh, Neil Howe has got his instruments um, deep into Steve's chest, uh, bringing the heart into that cavity that we've talked about. And now the heart sitting inside there. As I said, that area, about the size of a small football, quite whitish walls um, around his chest, some more ice thrown in to the area as well just to keep that heart as cold as possible even though it's now sitting loosely in Steve's body and Mr Howell just trying to manipulate the heart to try and move it into the correct position he's got both of his hands in Steve's chest now which he was talking about earlier what I'm trying to do now is just open up because I'm doing sort of an upside down anastomosis right at the back of this guy's chest Mm. so what I need to be able to do is to thank you trying to drop the instrument so is to try and now see what I'm doing. Because as I, as I do this anastomosis, I gradually see less and less of what I'm doing. Just try and keep it in the same position, mate. And I'm just opening up the, the donor left atrial cavity so I can see where I am stitching. And so I think, you know, there's, there's lots of old phrases in surgery, and one of them is if you can see what you're doing, it's generally an easy thing to do. And, <laughs> and half the problem, I think, with surgery is just not being able to see what you're doing half the time. It's not completely com- finished, but you see the heart's just starting to beat, so we've connected in half the joints, and the heart's just starting to beat. Mm. And that's quite a sight, isn't it, from the heart being brought in completely still in ice. Mm. And now we see the new heart inside Steve pumping, pumping away. So, so at the moment, it's, it's not pumping, so it's not doing any work. It's beating. It's beating, yes, OK, yeah. I see the so, distinction. So at the moment, the, we, we, you know, there's not a lot of blood going to this heart, because it's all going around Ruthie's machine. But it's starting to beat, and that is a good sign. That was Chris Warburton following Steve's transplant. But people like Steve are often sat on the waiting list for donations for months, even years. Back to Stephen Large. The central issue here is really the the huge imbalance between the supply of hearts for donation, for transplantation, and the need for it. We're an ageing population, the need is going up, 
And the number of organs available is actually going down. Why? Because because public health is so good. People are wearing crash helmets. They're driving at sensible speeds. It's a demonstration of fantastic outcomes from, from public health. So we've been looking at alternatives. And so what we've been doing in Papworth is to ask the question, what about those poor folk who have no therapeutic outcome for their devastating brain problem and treatment is withdrawn at the patient's relative's request and the intensive care's request? And for a number of years now, those folk who have treatment withdrawn, their hearts stop and they have gone forward for organ donation. And up until recently, the question of using the heart from such donors hasn't been an issue. But we've, um, we've pushed and said these are appropriate hearts and we've shown that modelling in a rat and a pig model, they're going to be very appropriate hearts, uh, perhaps even better than the, the current ones we use. And so we started a programme after 10 years of justification on the 28th of February 2015 hugely exciting and to date the country has transplanted 23 huts the majority at Papworth and four from our sister hospital in Harefield and this is a hugely exciting development we think that at least 50 further heart transplants will be offered to the program through this development so it's pretty exciting stuff but the frustrating thing is the demand is still so much greater and I, I think Sadly, the demand will always be greater than the supply, whatever fabulous innovations we come up with. But in the meantime, let's encourage everybody, everybody to get onto the organ donor register. Opt in and help somebody. Stephen Large, and what a wonderful reminder of just how far we've come in the last 50 years. And the research I've seen at the conference really has made me very excited to see what's around the corner in terms of treating and preventing heart disease. A huge thank you to the BHF and BCS for inviting us along and for everyone who spoke to us. There's so much we wanted to include, but do watch out as we'll be publishing a few more interviews on our specials feed. That's at nakedscientist.com slash specials. And that's all we have time for this week. Do join us again next week when we'll be following a post-mortem on the air to look at how the autopsy process can help us to improve the way we care for the living by learning from the dead. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Until next time, goodbye. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.